This is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Wurundjeri Land, and this is The Full Story. George Orwell has long been lionised as a literary champion for the poor and oppressed, bringing us classics like Animal Farm, 1984 and Down and Out in London and Paris. But what if Orwell was a hypocrite who hid the secret to his success from the world? A new Australian book called Wifedom is shedding light on the life of Orwell's wife, Eileen O'Shaughnessy, and the important role she played in writing some of his famous works. Today, author Anna Funder on what their marriage can teach us about power, wives and the patriarchy. It's Tuesday, the 4th of July. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard. But thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Anna, you've written a book about Orwell's wife, Eileen O'Shaughnessy. But before we talk about who she is, you've always loved George Orwell as a writer. Tell me, tell me more about that. Uh, I've always loved George Orwell because I've loved how he has been able to write very personal nonfiction accounts. So I've loved The Road to Wigan Pier, where he goes north uh, in the early 30s and goes into this coal mining town called Wigan and literally puts his six foot two frame into the coal mines and lives with coal miners and so on and writes about that. Or Homage to Catalonia, where he's off in the war and writes about what that's like to be in the trenches. Um, he's got this wonderful, self-deprecating, clear-eyed, underdog view of the world, which I've always really loved. And then, of course, there are his most famous books, Animal Farm and 1984. And for someone like me who's interested in power, who has it and how it works on people, his point of view has always been absolutely just wonderful to me. Mm. And I was surprised to learn in reading this that George Orwell was actually raised in a household full of politically engaged women. So what is it that interests you in the women in his life? You can read, as I did, the six major biographies of Orwell and not realise that he was raised in a household of women and politically engaged left-wing intellectual women at that. Um, The biographers tend to emphasise his inheritance through his male line, 
But his mother was half French, a Fabian, which is a left-wing socialist kind of group that she belonged to. And his aunt, her sister, was a Fabian, a suffragette who demonstrated with the Pankhursts and got arrested for it. A kind of sexually liberated woman who lived with a man without marrying him and then married him in her 50s. She was an actress on the stage in Vaudible. She ran a literary salon with quite well-known writers, H.G. Wells and Inez Bet. So you would think that for a politically engaged writer interested in left-wing politics and power and the power of words, this inheritance through his mother and aunt would be the most important one. But that's really written out of the biographies, as it were. So it's both a fascinating inheritance and it's fascinating that we don't know about it. Mm. Well, let's focus on the woman at the centre of your book, Orwell's wife, Eileen O'Shaughnessy. Tell me a little bit about what her life was like before she married him. So Eileen O'Shaughnessy uh, was born in 1905. Um, she was a couple of years younger than Orwell. Orwell thought of himself as lower upper middle class, which I think means upper middle class aspirations uh, without the money really to fulfil them. Mm. And she was slightly more upper, upper middle class. She was very clever. She was head girl and ducks at her high school and she won a scholarship to study English, to read English at Oxford um, in the 20s at a time when women had only been able to graduate from Oxford for the last four years or so. She went and read English at Oxford under uh, Tolkien of the Hobbit fame and she was lively, whimsical, funny, self-deprecating and extremely clever and when she met Orwell she had been working for about nine years after graduation in various kind of jobs that were available to women at that time, Mm. also doing a bit of writing and she had then enrolled in an MA in psychology so she was studying to be a psychologist when she met Orwell. And she married George Orwell in June 1936. So how did being married to him change the trajectory, if you like, of her life? Well, it changed it enormously. I think the thing that perhaps changed it most for her was not getting a first at Oxford, which she somehow thought she might get. She only got a second. And so perhaps then her confidence was racked, really. And she shifted from, I think, possibly wanting to be a writer herself, which she could have been to marrying this writer. So Orwell fell in love with her at first sight and she took a bit longer to come around. When she married him, she had the word obey taken out of her wedding vows. So when I was researching this book, I was finding out these things. I was thinking, what kind of a woman does that? But she really put all her intellectual effort, which was tremendous, and energies behind Orwell and behind his writing, really. Being married, for many women, changed their lives from being something at which they were the centre to something on which they were perhaps more decentered or more on the periphery and the man's life was the centre. That was certainly the case for her. And she put her efforts into making him into a better writer. In fact, after the wedding, people close to Orwell were astonished, was the word they used, at how much better his writing became, although no one would or could attribute that to her influence. Well, you also argue that Eileen has been buried by history, especially the role that she played in one of Orwell's best-known books, Animal Farm. Come 
visit Animal Farm, where all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. First, can you tell us a little bit about Animal Farm and I guess what makes it so unique? Animal Farm was written during the Blitz in the war in London as Hitler is raining bombs down on London. And Eileen and Orwell insist on living in London and not moving to the relative safety of the cottage at Wellington. And during the war, he wanted to write an essay critical of Stalin. Stalin, at that point, was helping the Allies win the war against Hitler. And Eileen knew that likely no such essay critical of such a crucial ally would be able to be published nor would it be very popular because they were very much hoping that with Stalin's help they would be able to fight off Hitler, which didn't look particularly likely at that time. So she convinced him to write an allegory instead, to write this criticism of Stalin as a novel. And she'd studied allegory uh, and fable under, as I said, Tolkien and others at Oxford, so she knew how to do it. And they wrote Animal Farm, which is a short and delightful book. It's 30,000 words. You can read it in an afternoon. They wrote that in bed together at night to keep warm because they couldn't afford to heat their house as the bombs were falling on London. So he would write during the day. She was working at the Ministry of Censorship in Senate House and then later at the Ministry of Food in order to support them. But she would come home each evening and they would work on it together. Her colleague was a novelist called Lettuce Cooper and they became very good friends. Um, And Eileen would come into work every day and, as Lettuce put it in a memoir and in accounts that she's written of that time, would regale everybody with the latest instalment of Animal Farm. And Lettuce said that Eileen knew at once that it was a winner and that they all love to hear each day how the book was progressing. So Lettuce has left written accounts of that. So it's very clear that that involvement was deep, it was daily, uh, it was ongoing, and it was a source of great joy for, for Eileen. Animal Farm has Eileen's voice, her whimsy and her wit and her gentleness all over it. And it also is an absolute outlier in all of Orwell's works. Instead of having um, a kind of a slightly disgruntled every man like Winston or Gordon Comstock as its central character, kind of Orwell stand-in figure, it has a genuine ensemble cast of characters. And it's very un-Orwellian in that it notices and is able to depict the female as well as the male characters in this cast of animals. And it has a perfect fable structure. Again, after it was published, his best friend, Richard Rees, and his publisher, Frederick Warburg, were absolutely astonished at Animal Farm. And Frederick Warburg, his publisher, said, it was as if the writer of rather grey novels had suddenly taken wings and become a poet. But neither of them would attribute that to Eileen's influence. And everybody since, including the biographers, have been very, very careful about not crediting her too much with helping or writing. People don't want to take away from Orwell, but why that should involve erasing the contribution, which was enormous, of Eileen, 
uh, is a mystery. I mean, it kind of speaks to this idea of the myth of the male genius, you know, which exists in so many fields, but particularly in art, you know, it's very hard to shatter and people get very defensive about it when you try to. I mean, is that part of the reason, do you think, that we, you know, that, that perhaps the biographers didn't want to um, shatter this illusion that Orwell's genius is completely independent of any of the influences in his life? I think that's exactly right. I think we we love superheroes and we love geniuses and they are self-made. They don't owe anything to mothers or aunts or sisters or intellectual friends or lovers or patrons who happen to be women or to your brilliant, brilliant wife. Mm. Well, I think that kind of manufacturing of a man who does it all alone is a a damaging myth for the women who are doing enormous amounts of work in the lives of men all around us, even today. And that's something that I wanted wife to this book to look very closely at. I mean, I make no bones about it. I come at it originally from a position of kind of envy. It's like, oh my God, I'm a writer and a wife. Hang on a second. I'm married to a really nice man who does <laughs> who does lots of stuff, but still I do more and of the work of life and love and family and everything else. So I, I kind of come at this from this position of envy, which mm. actually, as it turned out, was quite a um, an insightful writing position to come from. Beyond the intellectual and um, creative contribution that Eileen made, how else did she give George the time and the space to write during their marriage? Well, she did everything. So she did the cleaning. Consequently, they lived in quite a dirty house. I don't think she was very good at it. But all the shopping and the cooking, which she was extremely good at, the organising of um, any dinner parties, hosting people over, including his relatives, sometimes for months, an aunt, a nephew, uh, dealt with all his correspondence with his agent and publishers, uh, edited everything, typed everything, dealt with all his correspondence, um, provisioned his life, organised his holidays, travel, everything. She did absolutely everything. And that involved, for instance, at Wallington, cleaning out the disgusting latrine the privy. So Orwell had a very sensitive, famously sensitive sense of smell. He also was tuberculitic most of his life, which is a horrible thing. But in the early days of marriage, she was left, you know, literally wading into shit to clean out the privy. So she did Mm. everything. And she supported him financially, as I said, which is very much played down or ignored, you know, or obscured in the biographies. Mm. Without which there's no way that he could have written as much as he did, I suppose. He couldn't have written as much, most certainly. He wouldn't have lived as he did in his condition. And certainly the books would not have been as good. Mm. How do you think that would have been for her at that time? Look, as I say, Eileen, one of the things about Eileen was everybody loved her. She was obviously also very funny, but also kind of um, self-deprecating and self-effacing. So I don't think she would ever have claimed credit in any obvious or public way, which is to say that makes her into this kind of admirable person who essentially works in the service of another. And another way to say that is it makes her into an ideal wife. 
And I think today we are changing what it is, obviously, to be a wife. I'm talking about in a heterosexual arrangement because I'm talking about patriarchy. Mm. But I think the having a much more fluid notion of what it is to be a man or a woman, a much more fluid notion of gender or marriage is opening up a much better conversation about these roles and enabling us to look at the traditional role of being a woman, a wife in patriarchy, married to a man, and the sort of labour and life theft that that involves. I don't think she would have ever claimed credit, but I wouldn't mind claiming some of it for her. Next, why Orwell's marriage still resonates today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I found it really interesting how you found Eileen O'Shaughnessy in the archives, if you like. Could you tell us a little bit about what what material you drew on to find her? I discovered that there is an Orwell Society in London. Its patron is the son that Orwell and Eileen adopted during the war. His name is Richard Blair because Orwell's real name was Eric Blair. And I went into the archives in London, the Orwell archive, and I actually, I couldn't believe it. I, I couldn't believe that they would let me in there in a way. And they let me in there with boxes and boxes of these original letters and diaries of Orwell's mother and of Orwell. So it was kind of deeply thrilling and amazing. But I could see there original copies of uh, these letters that Eileen had written to George in her own handwriting and also six letters that Eileen wrote to her best friend from Oxford days whose name was Nora Symes Miles. So there was this wonderful cache of intimate material about the marriage really from the beginning to the end. So discovering those was really what set me off into this six-year um six years project really of rediscovering her and finding out about this marriage. And in Wifedom, you you blend fictional scenes from the couple's life together with real quotes taken from these letters that were written by Eileen and, and her friends to tell her story. Why did you decide to do this? The fictional parts are based very closely on, for instance, where Eileen was and what was happening in her life. I know an enormous amount and can make this fiction in a way, very close to the facts and use the real letters. I have these sections which are 
based on her letters, these six letters to the best friend, Nora, and three extraordinarily beautiful letters she writes to Orwell that are very intimate and very lovely. I know where she was when she wrote those letters. I know that she was bleeding or ill or that he was off with another woman and she knew it. I know what she's not telling the best friend, which is often those things, exactly. Mm. So I am able to write scenes where she comes to life with, in a kind of 360 way. The purpose of it is to bring her back to life as a real woman who is alive in the reader's mind as she was in mine and is in mine. If the biographers can write these stories of a male genius essentially by leaving the women on the cutting room floor, what they are actually doing is writing fictions of omission. And it seemed to me that I needed to write a fiction of inclusion. So that's what I do. You've said, Anna, you can really relate to the kind of invisible labour that Eileen provides. Um, And, you know, her story resonates with you, not just as a writer, but also as a wife. Can you share a little bit about that with us? I am um, in, you know, in no way any kind of downtrodden wife. I'm the most privileged of, you know, ridiculous kind of uh, fortunate women. But still, I feel like, and I write this, the world conspires against me and my husband so that, you know, we have three children. We think we share the work of life and love equally, but... A lot of it falls for me, a lot of the school messages or organisation or birthday party organisation or um, holidays or shopping or cooking or looking after family members and extended family or buying birthday presents or organising Christmas or whatever it is in this extremely privileged middle-class life I'm living turns out not to be equally shared. And further than that, the burden of discussing it, of bringing it up, of allocating it in a more shared way also falls to me. And I think it falls to most women. Mm. And that is a sign that we feel that it's ours either to do or to discuss the distribution of. So when that is no longer the case, then uh, we will have dismantled one of the main uh, prongs of patriarchy, but we're a long way off. Mm. I have to say, reading this book, and I am newly married, (laughs) reading this book, I really worried more than once that maybe there isn't such thing as an equal partnership as as much as we think that there is. Because, you know, you writing this book so many years after Orwell and Eileen's marriage, um, you can see the parallels there between in those relationships. So I don't know, I just... um, I'm asking if you have any hope. (laughs) What should I do? I have high hopes for you. I think the first thing is to reverse this invisibility. The invisibility is mammoth. It's an invisibility of enormous amounts of work, of life and love and care that is absolutely vital Mm. to keeping all of us going. Um, You know, we talk about it in a shorthand way as, you know, domestic work and the work of emotional labour. It is enormous. It is vital. It's what keeps societies going. And I think the thing is to make that work uh, visible because when it's visible, it Mm. can be shared and people can be, it can be talked about and it can be shared properly. So this work of wifedom, my book is about reversing 
these many invisibilities of history, of biography, of patriarchy, and hopefully of every young and beautiful contemporary marriage. (laughs) I mean, we started talking today about all the things that you love about George Orwell as a writer, and now you've learned so much as well about him, but also about his wife, Eileen O'Shaughnessy, and, and his treatment of her in their private life. So how do you reconcile these two things when you read his work now? I love that question um, because it's a question that underlies the book. So the way I deal with this is I don't think anybody leads a sort of flawless, unblemished life. And we want writing, perhaps lots of art forms, to show us things that are true about life, that are hard to look at, but that are contained between covers or on a frame or on a screen, so they're less frightening. But in Orwell's case, to look at tyranny, sadism, oppression, conspiratorial systems of power, Mm. in order to see that, you have to be someone who somehow feels it. Um, At the beginning of the book, there's a scene where my daughter says to me, um, it's the height of me too, and she says, what are you working on? And I say, it's a biography about Orwell and his marriage, and it's hard. And she basically says, is that because he's an asshole?" And I say, maybe, <laughs> uh, but the world was set up for men to think of themselves as decent human beings, even if they were. And she says, well, Orwell must have been interested in this if he wrote about it. And then she looked at me and she just said, well, why are you interested in this, Mum? And I said, well, maybe I'm an asshole. And she's just, it was a very risky moment of my my relationship. And she says, she sort of shrugged and just said, well, isn't everybody? And I was kind of immensely impressed by her insight into the world or into me or something, and also kind of saddened by it a little bit. So I think in a, you know, in a colloquial way, it takes one to know one, but we want our artists to look at those things that we otherwise wouldn't look at and to represent them in narrative, say, that is both beautiful so that it's possible to look at them. The other thing really specifically about Orwell is that he comes up with this concept of doublethink, which is the, most famously in 1984, he describes doublethink as the ability to hold two things in your mind, one of them at a conscious level, So I'm thinking perhaps the idea that you're a decent human being or a genius or whatever it is, and the other at an unconscious level, the fact that this relies on the work of another, for instance. And you can't bring the unconscious into the conscious because otherwise, in Orwell's words, that would give you a sense of guilt. So patriarchy is a system of doublethink in which men think of themselves as decent human beings at the same time as they are allowed to, you know, wolf whistle women or underpay them or sexually harass them or rape them and so on and so forth. So his insight is something that is enormously useful to me and that comes from his work, which is also a source of awe and delight. So I think it's possible to hold both the man and the wife and the work and the life in mind at the same time. Mm. I mean, another word for doublethink is hypocrisy. (laughs) And I suppose even though you can hold them together, does it take away from any of Orwell's righteousness or his championing of social justice, knowing this other part of his life and this other part of his personality through the work that you've done? I don't think so. I don't 
think it's fair to expect artists or even anyone to be flawless or as good as they think they are. Mm. And in some ways, Orwell valued decency so much as a value. You can value it because at some level you know you don't have it. Yeah. Whereas Eileen was really a deeply decent human being. So he married what he wanted, he wrote about what he wanted and valued. And the fact that he wasn't that is possibly the thing that enabled him to desire it so strongly. And uh, I don't think we need our writers or to be saints. I don't think they could do the work they needed to do and show us the world as it is if they were. Including me, of course. That was Anna Funder, author of Wifedom, Mrs Orwell's Invisible Life, which is published by Penguin. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Alison Chan and myself, sound design and mixing by Daniel Simo. Our theme music was written by Joe Koning. The executive producer for this episode was Gabrielle Jackson. I'm Jane Lee. Catch you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.